Well, as always, it is an absolute joy for me to be able to come and share this morning's message. So thank you to Pastor Mark. So in 2017, two men had an idea for an app, an app that would revolutionize the entertainment industry. This app would change the way performing venues were able to this app would change the way performing venues were able to get performing artists to book on their venues. Okay? So they had this, they had this idea for an app. And so in order to kickstart that app, in order to kickstart it off and to attract investors and get a lot of media hype and buzz over this app, what they did is they cast this vision. And they cast a vision over a super, I'm sorry, my iPad is not behaving at all. There he goes. There we go. Um, they cast a vision for a super exclusive music festival that would blow away any and all expectations. Okay? So, with a couple of people, they cast a vision for, they, env they envisioned, let's see, a private tropical paradise. They envisioned a fleet of private yachts, secluded bungalows. Okay, celebrity and gourmet chefs, supermodels and social media influencers from all over the world lounging around to a lineup of some of the best live music this world has to offer in what would sure to be an unforgettable experience. It was called the Fire Festival. Okay, the Fire Festival. And so what happened, there was this, there was tickets and day passes were going anywhere from $500 to $12,000 for a day. And they had sold 85% of their tickets within the first 48 hours. By all appearances, this looked to be the party of the century. But there was one gaping problem, okay? They weren't ready for that kind of growth. Because as potent and as intoxicating as that dream was, the logistics of trying to throw a huge music festival on a secluded tropical island with zero infrastructure just couldn't bear the load of the dream. Things quickly started to spiral out of control. People were telling them to put it off. They said, no, we're going to do it. We're going to become legends. And so one logistical nightmare after another dominoed and dominoed, and they started making bigger and bigger promises, and they got in deeper and deeper over their heads. The event was a total disaster. For the few that managed to arrive, rather than finding secluded private bungalows, they encountered some scattered FEMA refugee shelters with rain-soaked mattresses inside that had been left out the day prior. Rather than gourmet meals cooked by celebrity chefs, they were given emergency rations of cheese sandwiches in styrofoam boxes. Now, when the dust had settled from this event, the chief organizer was convicted of defrauding investors out of a little over $26 million. Okay? And to this day, the Fire Festival remains one of the most potent reminders in recent memory of the dangers of casting vision for explosive growth without having the capability of sustaining that growth. Desire and grit is simply not enough. Now, from our vantage point, we can throw sticks and stones at events like this all day long right? But I can't really fault these men in what they wanted. What these men wanted was immediate, explosive, meaningful growth. And if I'm honest with myself, I want that too, right? But these men were also willing to cross a lot of ethical boundaries in order to get there, so that's where I sort of have a problem. But I ask, but here's where I want to go with this. For those of us in this room, how many of us desire 
immediate, explosive, meaningful growth? How many of us want to be in a different place in our marriages, a different place in our spiritual lives? How many of us in this room want to have a more purposeful, vibrant, deeply fulfilling life? And I think a lot of us would say, yes, sign me up for that. I want what he's having. That's great. But at the same time, how many of, the, how many of us in this room would, just like those men, be woefully underprepared to handle the challenges that inherently come with growth? And that's what I want to look at in our text this morning. I want us to be able to answer the question of how do I respond to the challenges and opposition that inherently come with growth? Okay? And you can't just take one answer and run with it. There are several different kinds of challenges that are going to come, and those are all going to require different kinds of responses. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at two of them. Today, if you'll turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, we're going to see two different kinds of challenges that come as a direct result of growth. And I also want to give us two different responses for each of those. So two challenges and two responses each. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we come before your word, and we ask that you change us through it. Open our minds and hearts to receive what you would have for us, that we may be changed by your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So just as a recap, as we have journeyed through the book of Acts, we started off at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came, it's moving, the church is growing and growing and growing. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we hit our first snag. Peter and John had been arrested for performing a miracle. Okay, um, They got brought before the same council that condemned Jesus just a few months earlier, but they were released without a scratch. The church celebrates this as a huge victory. Yay, the church continues to grow and grow, and more and more people are at it. But then last week, we hit another snag, a bigger snag. This time, it wasn't just Peter and John that had been arrested. It was all 12 apostles. And though they were miraculously let out of jail by the time they had been lassoed and brought back before the Sanhedrin, this time they did not get off without a scratch, and there was no angel to bail them out. This time, all 12 apostles were flogged. 40 lashes minus one. Apparently, 40 lashes killed too many people, and so you give them 40 lashes minus one. Each of the apostles was beaten, bloody, and bruised. Now, I imagine if you're a church member at this time, and one of the apostles is coming to your house that night for a meeting, the church is starting to get a little uncomfortable. The apostle is coming with a cane. He can't really walk right right now. He can't sit down. There's bruises and gashes all over him. And the church starts to wonder, is that in my future? Persecution on the church is turning up. The heat and pressure are turning up. And this, today in our text, we're going to meet a man named Stephen. Stephen, who in the course, full of the Holy Spirit and power, who in the course of this next two chapters will become our first martyr. So now the church is beginning to turn its heel on that question of what exactly does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Which reminds me, it's time for our memory verse for the series. Will you stand with me as we recite Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's say together. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Thank you. Acts 1, 8. Yes, I forgot. You did that. Very good. Just like Bible drill. Y'all can have a seat. <laughs> you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. 
You want to take a guess at what the Greek word is for witness? It's martyr. Martyr. You will be my martyrs in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's got a different ring to it, doesn't it? How are we, as disciples of Christ, supposed to handle the challenges and the opposition that is rising around us? That's where we're going to be in our book today. Read with me in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 says, In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And it's here that we see our first challenge. And our first challenge is this. Growth is often met with internal challenges that seek to divide. Now, I hope in that passage we just read, it strikes you that the source of strife and contention is coming from within the church. This is the first time that we've seen that. Okay, And so what I want to do is I want to zoom in on this problem a little bit, and then we're going to circle back to ways that we can respond. Let's look at this problem just for a second. First, there is a cultural element. When it says the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews, that was a cultural divide in their day. Okay, So for the Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic Jews were those who had adopted much of Greek culture, Greek thought, Greek customs, Greek language. They couldn't speak Aramaic. They couldn't read the Hebrew Scriptures. So if they were going to interact with the scriptures, they had to read the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Okay? Now, that stood in stark contrast to the Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews, they considered themselves more of the, the true Jews. Okay? They rejected a lot of Greek culture and Greek influence on society. And so, in the minds of the Hebraic Jews, the Hellenistic Jews constituted sort of a second-class citizen. Okay? So those are the dynamics that are at play here. And it's the Hellenistic Jews that are calling out the Hebraic Jews and saying, something's not right. This isn't right. Your widows are getting food and ours are not. They're calling out the fact that your cultural prejudices have infiltrated the church. And we've got to do something about that. And so the church, and that's not just the apostles, all of the disciples, all of the church and all of the apostles are going to have to take a hard look at that, at the cultural elements involved. So not only are there cultural elements, there's also logistical elements, okay? Now, in the Greek text, you know how in the first few chapters we saw, like, and their numbers were being added to daily, okay? The language in the Greek changes. They're not even saying addition anymore. They're like, we have surpassed addition. This is just multiplication. In the days, the church is multiplying and multiplying and multiplying. The logistics of ministry have gotten so crazy that the disciples cannot handle the influx of needs and resources, Okay? Now, you can imagine Jesus' ministry really didn't focus on taking the disciples aside and teaching them how to handle church finance, okay? That wasn't his focus. And so you can imagine the disciples are pretty frustrated at this point because at this point, the overwhelming logistics of ministry have divided them from their strengths. It has divided them from their purposes, and they are no longer able to minister effectively. Now, it's also not hard to see how this can play true in our lives as well where our to-do lists get so long and so out of control that we lack the ability to do anything well. We're surface level on so many things but can't go deep in anything. That's the challenge that the disciples are facing. They have an internal issue that is seeking to divide them. And so what are they gonna do? 
And so this is where we see our first response. How do they respond to internal challenges? Response number one, they realign with the purposes of God. They realign with the purposes of God. They understand that their purpose is to minister the word. And though it's equally important to minister to the physical needs of the congregation, they need to stay specific to their calling. And even in the Greek, the word minister for minister the word and wait on tables is the same word. And so they're not saying that this is some subpar task and we need to be ministering the word, y'all can wait on tables. That's not what they're saying. They're saying these are equally important, but we need to focus on our purpose. So how do they realign with God's purposes? A couple of different ways. Read with me in verses three and four. Verses three and four say, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. First, they realign with the purposes of God by prioritizing the Holy Spirit to lead those who lead ministry. This, in a lot of other contexts, this is considered the first commissioning of the first deacon board ever. Okay? And what is the requirement for these first ministers, these first deacons, to be full of the Holy Spirit? Very first thing. If they're not full of the Holy Spirit, their names do not get put forward. Okay, And that says something to us. It says that the Holy Spirit needs to be in the front seat of the church. That if the Holy Spirit is not in the front seat, then the flesh is in the front seat. And the flesh is going to be taking the church in an entirely different direction. If the church is the work of the Holy Spirit, then the Spirit needs to be in the front seat. Another thing that it tells me is that if there is someone who is led by the Holy Spirit, then for me, I don't care about their age. I don't care about their gender. I don't care about their personality type. I don't care about their ethnicity. I can follow them. Why? Not because I necessarily trust them, because I trust the Holy Spirit, and I trust the Holy Spirit to be guiding them. That's where we are. The second thing the apostles do to realign themselves is by drawing boundaries to protect their purposes. They narrow their focus, and they take out the things that are unnecessary. We read earlier in the text the disciples give their attention to prayer and ministry of the word. Some of your translations have we devote ourselves. And I think that really captures a little bit more of the power of the words. Of the, they're not saying that we're just going to look at those. They're like, we're going to zoom in on these. We are going to focus on these. And we are going to ignore the things that distract us from those purposes. So everything that we do needs to be in the service of those two purposes. For them, it's prayer and ministry of the word. So, our first response is to realign with God's purposes, and we do that by prioritizing the Holy Spirit and drawing boundaries to protect those, purses, those purposes. Now, a second way that we can respond to internal challenges can be found in the following verses. Will you read with me in verses 5 and 6? It says, this proposal pleased the whole group, and so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert from Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Here we see the disciples not only realign themselves with God's purposes, but they decide to confront the broken system. They confront the broken system. And I want to pause right here and just kind of camp out on this idea for a bit. Because the systems of the church are not really in play yet. 
the concrete hasn't dried. And in this time of flexibility, I think the church was able to wrestle with some really basic questions, such as, why do we make systems anyway? Why are we making this system answer to minister to the needs of the people? The system's purpose is to minister to needs. And if the needs are not being met, what do you need to change? You need to change the system. Okay? Now, we're about to see that contrasted in a minute when we get to the Sanhedrin and Stephen's opposers because they are going to value the system above all else. You do not threaten the system. But the disciples are willing to change that system. Okay? And I think that bears some relevance for us because in this time of rapid growth, the people's needs are changing, and therefore the system needs to change along with those needs. Now, one way that the early church decides to confront their brokenness, to confront their system, is by valuing multiple perspectives, okay? Multiple perspectives. And this is huge, especially for us today. It doesn't matter what century you're in. They didn't just want to create an echo chamber of people who all fought and acted the same way. They wanted to put together a truly diverse group of people to lead this ministry. Let's take a look at the names again. What are some of those names? Procurus, Nicanor, I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right, wait a minute, Timon, I say Timon, like Timon and Pumbaa, right? Parmenas, there's all sorts of things. These are all Greek names, okay? And one person in the text is even explicitly mentioned as a Greek convert from Antioch, okay? Why is that important? It's because he was a foreigner. He wasn't born in the church. He wasn't born in Judaism. He was going to have fresh eyes, okay? This is the group of people that the church has decided to lead ministry, Okay? This shows how serious the church was, and not only creating a system that was fair, but also making sure that it was saturated with the Holy Spirit from the ground up. And what did the disciples do? They prayed over them, laid their hands on them, and commissioned them for their task. Go. As I was thinking about how to bring this home for us, I'm asking myself, what does it look like for us to be able to realign with the purposes of God, and what does it look like for us to confront the brokenness in our systems? And I just have to say from the outset, I know that that sounds really glib and happy and easy. Well, what you need to do if you want to face internal challenges is you just need to realign with God and confront the brokenness in your system. But I can tell you, I know from personal experience, It is some of the hardest work that you will ever have to do. It's hard. A lot of times it feels like the systems that we're tearing down, we're tearing down pieces of ourselves. And in a lot of ways, I guess we are. I received an email this week, an update from RZIM Ministries. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, um, it's a ministry that focuses on apologetics, which is interacting with other religions and other worldviews, especially in the context of college campuses. It had a huge impact in my life. And its motto is helping the believer to think and the thinker to believe. Well, about this time last year, Ravi Zacharias passed away. Its founder and namesake passed away. And about the same time, there were some very troubling allegations of sexual misconduct and deep sexual sin that had been going on for years. And so the board of directors put everything on a full-on stop and hired a third-party investigative firm to handle the investigation. And even from the outside, before they did any investigation, they committed to full disclosure, no matter what, no matter the results, full disclosure, full transparency. Results came out in February, and they were heartbreaking on so many fronts. And if I had to summarize the video that Robbie's daughter, Sarah, gave in, his video, in their video this week, it would be exactly what we're talking about. 
right now, their organization is devastated. They are trying and seeking the Lord's will, praying to realign with God's singular purpose for their ministry. And at the same time, they're tearing down much of their broken system. They are totally restructuring and reorganizing from the ground up. They're tearing down a system that they thought was safe and good and whole in an effort to build something even better. So that's what it looks like when we're dealing with internal challenges that seek to divide us from the inside. But let's shift our focus now to what it means when our challenges and our opposition comes from the outside. And our second challenge is this, challenge number two. Growth is often met with external opposition that seeks to destroy. So if you'll bear with me, we're going to read the rest of our passage, and then we'll come back and zoom in. Okay, read with me starting in verse 7. Verse 7 says, the word, So the word of God spread. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. But opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as from the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. So then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And so they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, just like last time, I want to take a minute, I want to analyze a few qualities of this problem and then circle back to how we can respond, okay? The main thing I want us to notice about this kind of opposition is the different kinds of forms that it takes throughout this passage. If you remember the first few verses we just read, we saw that their first tactic was just blatant, overt opposition, just plain old opposition, plain and dry, okay? And personally, of all the tactics, I like this one the best right? It's cleanest. I like a fight where I can actually see my enemy, okay? So in this context, Stephen says something. Opposition disagrees. Excellent. We have a debate. We can defend our position. And in classical public debate, one idea is pitted against another idea. And so if one idea stands up better to the test of reality, if it's more coherent, more cohesive, it stands to the rigors of reality, then that idea wins, and we can say, because this is a marketplace of ideas, it doesn't need to devolve into modern debate to where if you can't stand up against the validity of an idea, you attack the person. And if you attack the person and say their mom's ugly and so their idea shouldn't matter anyway, that's not classical debates. It's one idea versus another. And so that was their first tactic, just have a debate. But notice the text makes clear that Stephen schooled them in debate at every opportunity. It says they couldn't even stand up to the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke, okay? So these people had two choices. They could either realign their understanding of who Jesus was, or they can protect their broken system. And that's what they chose to do. They protected their broken system and they were willing to play dirty to do it. So not only can opposition just be overt, it can also be covert. Let's read together. Let's continue in verses 11 and 12. It says, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, 
we have heard Stephen speaking blasphemous words and against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Opposition just went underground. They won't oppose him to his face anymore because they'll lose. And so they have to go around back. Okay? So they go around back and notice they start stirring up the people. And that gets the elders' attention because the people are upset. And then the elders start getting a little upset. And that attracts the attention of the teachers of the law, the upper echelon. And so now we have this people are stirred up. The elders are stirred up. The teachers of the law are stirred up. And that was their intention. Now, I know at this point, some of you might be saying, whoa, 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 Rob, are you telling me that there's actual people who would intentionally broadcast a false narrative to intentionally sow seeds of distress and strife and division among the people, all to advance a political agenda? No way! That would never happen today. Thank goodness. (laughs) Waiting for those relevant biblical passages, right? That's exactly what has happened. Overt I mean, opposition can be overt, it can be covert, and it can also be outright deceitful. They can't beat him by telling the truth. They can't beat him by even quoting him. And so they have to lie and twist what he says in order to rile up the establishment. Notice how verse 3 quotes the false witnesses as saying this, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. Two of the most foundational pillars of Judaism, the centrality of the temple for worship and the preeminence of the Mosaic law. If you threaten either of those two things, I guarantee you, you have the Sanhedrin's complete and undivided attention. Now comes the twisting. Read with me in verse 14. It says, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Bible trivia time. Did Jesus ever say that he would destroy the temple? Some of you have these passages rolling around in your head. You're like, yeah, yeah." no, he did. No, he did not. He did say that the temple would be destroyed, that there would be not one stone left upon another. But he never said that he would destroy it. Now, the closest you get to that is the book of John. The book of John chapter 2 says this temple will be destroyed, but I will raise it up in three days. Okay? So that's as close as we get. So they have to twist Stephen's words in order to drive home a point. That's not what Jesus said. And now the fun part is this. He will change the customs that Moses handed down to us. Now, I could get into some deep rabbit holes on this, but here's the thing. It's one thing to speak against the law of God, and it's another thing to speak against the customs of people that surround the law of God. People have been arguing about this for 2,000 years. But if you want a really in-depth argument on this, just look at the Protestant Reformation. Okay, one of the five solas of the Reformation was sola scriptura. The question is, what has the authority to bind your conscience? What has the authority to bind your conscience and your life? Is it only scripture, or is it scripture and the traditions of men? Scripture and the counsels of men. Scripture and. Sola scriptura was one of the cries of the Reformation. Okay, so when you hear the word customs, that he's going to change the customs that Moses handed to us, I need you to hear the word system. He's going to change the system. And as we know, that that is absolutely not allowed. You cannot threaten the system. The system is holy in their minds. And so what they're going to do is they're going to run the same play that they ran against Jesus just a couple of months ago. 
What's that play? You bring up some false charges, you bring up some false witnesses, and then you wait. And when they speak, they'll say something that you can classify as blasphemous, and voila, you've got a death penalty, opposition's removed. It worked a couple of months ago with Jesus. Maybe it'll work again now. That's where they are. So that's how the other side is playing. Opposition can take a lot of different forms. It can be overt, covert, and even deceitful. So now I want to shift our attention to how we can respond in the face of that kind of opposition. Because if you're like me, you're a little frustrated at this point, and you see the dilemma of Stephen that say, I can either A, give up, the deck stacked against me, or B, try to beat them at their own game. Does anyone else feel that dilemma whenever you get in a situation where people aren't playing by the rules? You can either just throw your hands up, or you can try to beat them at their own game. But I think Scripture is offering us a third way. Scripture is offering us a third way, and it is this. Response number one, engage by using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but in the passages that we've read, Stephen has been mentioned three times. Three times. And each time he's mentioned, he's mentioned in the context of a couple of adjectives of awesomeness. Okay? So the first time we see Stephen, we see that he is full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And then a couple of verses later, we say, Stephen, who's full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And then the next time we say, here is Stephen, full of God's grace and power. Every time you see this guy, he has leveled up. Okay? Now, why in the world is Stephen described in these terms? Why does Luke paint Stephen in this light? And I think it's this. I want to argue today that I believe the reason that Luke describes Stephen this way is because these are the qualities that characterized how Stephen did ministry. These are what defined him in his ministry, and especially now during his trial, he was using the gifts that the Holy Spirit had given him. Notice that when he, when he beat the opposition in debate, it wasn't because he was just so awesome. It says that they couldn't stand up to the wisdom the Spirit had given him. It wasn't that Stephen was just quick thinking on his feet. It wasn't that he was intrinsically awesome. It was that he relied on the Holy Spirit and used the gifts that he gave him. Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, is described in these terms. I'm about to lay this out for you. I'm going to show you the words that describe Stephen from the text and also the ideas that describe the Sanhedrin as they're operating in this trial, and we're going to see the contrast because Stephen is about to speak in this next chapter, okay? And I can't wait for you to hear it next week. But you can be sure that when this man of God speaks, he is going to be speaking with Holy Spirit fire. When this man speaks, he is going to be engaging with the spirit and not the flesh. You see, the flesh would just seek its own way. The spirit seeks the will of God. When this man speaks, he will engage with wisdom and not with craftiness. Wisdom has no need to go around back and stir up lies of division and deceit. When this man speaks, he will, he will speak with power and not intimidation. Power does not need to beat a man within an inch of his life to force him into submission. When this man speaks, he will speak in faith and not fear. Does it make any sense for Stephen to fear these little men and their little scowls flexing their little muscles when he, by his own hands, has been working the miracles of God? No. Stephen can operate and sit in the gift that the Holy Spirit has given him. He has no need to fear. 
That's why I think verse 15 describes this. Acts 6.15 says, all who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And I have to wonder, why did the author describe it as like the face of an angel? It might be because our culture has such terrible images of angels. And it's like, imagine like, he had the face of an angel. Does that mean he had all these rosy, pinchable, chubby, baby fat cheeks? The face of an angel. That's how, that's how we read it, right? No, I think he's described as having the face of an angel because he so naturally and powerfully radiated the gifts of God that he wore them as if they were his own clothes. If you imagine that room and there's Stephen standing before the council, Stephen is the authority in that room. He is radiating with a strength and a holiness that no one else in that room is near to possessing. We engage with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us. That is how we do against opposition who has fully stacked the deck against us. And then lastly, we engage by drawing strength from the Father. I'm reminded of Isaiah 41.10 that says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. For I will strengthen you. I will help you. And I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We do not find our strength, ladies and gentlemen, by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We find our strength by drawing it from him who holds all strength. I hope at this point you can sort of feel Stephen's dilemma because it's real. How in the world is Stephen supposed to go on? Because we know the story. The enemy has stacked the deck. Stephen is about to die. But that's not the point. The point is how is Stephen going to play the game? And sometimes the hardest thing for us to realize as Christians is that God did not bless Stephen with those supernatural abilities so that he could win a rigged game. If our, own, if our only motivation for holding on to God and Jesus is so that he would give us a leg up to be able to win the rigged games of this world, we need to take a harder look at the cross. The cross showed us, shows us that God is not interested in winning games rigged by cheaters. But in fact, when we play by God's rules and engage the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we find that we have actually entered into a much, much, much larger game with much higher stakes that make these little rigged games, even the ones where our lives hang in the balance, look small by comparison. And even should we lose some of these small rigged games, if we are playing by God's rules, those losses are actually the victories. The cross has the final word. What looked to be the instrument of ultimate shame and defeat and death was actually the instrument of Christ's highest glory. His highest victory came through the cross. That is why Josie mentions the mystery of the cross. God used the symbol of defeat and shame and death and turned it into the symbol of absolute, unequivocal, undeniable victory now and forevermore. That's what it is to draw on the strength of the Father. For some of us, that might mean that we are wrongfully fired from a job. Which game are we going to play? Whose rules are we going to play by? Some of us, we might be defrauded. Some of us, we might have our names dragged through the mud, our careers destroyed. 
okay, which game are we going to play? Are we going to be dumb enough to try to muscle up to win a rigged game? Or are we going to engage with the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us and draw our strength from our Father? In the opening scene of the third movie in the Hobbit trilogy, Battle of the Five Armies, um, Smaug, a great and terrible dragon, has just laid waste to Lake Town. Okay? Everything's on fire. Everything's burning. And so, in a final desperate attempt to slay this dragon, a lone bowman and his son climb a tower to see if they can get one last shot to release their last dragon arrow. And as they reach the top of this tower, the bowman realizes that his bow has been broken. The dragon turns and sees, sees his helpless condition and immediately begins to taunt him. He's like, oh, that's, that's such a pity. You are alone. You are forsaken. You will burn and die. Is that your son? You can't save him from my fire. You will both burn and die. And so the bowman tethers his bowstring between two of the last pillars of that column. He positions his son right in front of him, facing him, and placed the shaft of an iron arrow, more of a spear, over his shoulder. He pulls the bow tight. The child is petrified, is terrified, shaking and crying. And the bowman says, no, son, you look at me. I need you to stay still. You look right at me. The sounds of the village burning are all around. And the dragon unleashes another set of taunts. And he says, there is nothing for you to do now but die. Nothing awaits you but death. And the dragon charges. Okay? At this, the child starts shaking again and tries to turn around to see the approaching dragon. And the father quickly checks his son. He's like, no, no, son. You look at me. Look only at me. Don't look at him. You stay with me. And he draws the bow taut, releases the arrow, and slays the dragon. In so many ways, we are that son. We are that son. The enemy taunts. The enemy lies. The enemy destroys and the enemy divides. But through all that, the father says, no child. You look at me. Only look at me. He's been defeated. I've got him. Don't play his game. You stay right here and you draw strength from me. As the church grows, opposition will come. Opposition from within, opposition from without. Persecution will rise and the church will grow all the more. But for us in this room and those of us watching online, may we as Life Point Church, may we pave the way for even more growth by engaging with the Holy Spirit that he has given us, by drawing strength from the Father, and may we have the courage to confront the very worst in ourselves and realign us with the purposes of God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we look at the story of Stephen and we cannot help but think, what a rigged game. And Stephen is doing everything right. Stephen, is following you. And yet we see where the story is headed. 
And we remember Acts 1.8 that you will be my martyrs. And so we wrestle with the question of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? God, we are yours. We have been convicted and convinced of your truth and we are yours through and through. May you give us the strength to follow you. The strength to follow you when challenges arise and when opposition arises. May we not be goaded into playing the rigged lesser games of this world, but may you draw our eyes up and may we rest in your Holy Spirit. May we engage those gifts and may we join you in your great game. For this we pray and ask in the risen and victorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.